Well, I'm not sure if the headings in your NIV are regarded as part of Scripture because I'm going to disagree with this one that uh, we've just had read to us because this is a, in this challenging story, and, and if you'll see why it's challenging, uh, I don't think that Jesus honours a Syrophoenician woman's faith. That's not what's happening in this story. In fact, I mentioned this story last week. It's why I've been mulling over it because it's always a, a story that's challenged me and I've struggled with it. And I'm not alone. Commentators throughout the centuries have actually struggled with this story. One of the things they struggle with is how Jesus speaks to this woman and the thing that he actually says to her. So, you know, we've just heard the story. A woman comes to Jesus. Now, she's not a Jew. And she's seeking Jesus' help on behalf of her daughter uh, who is possessed by a demon. And when she... Uh, kneels at Jesus' feet and makes her request of him. Jesus seems to insult her. And in fact, probably doesn't just seem to insult her, does insult her. Now we know that, in fact, Jesus had insulted people before. But normally he'd insulted the powerful, particularly if you've read Matthew's Gospel, where he says, woe to the Pharisees. And he calls them all sorts of things, all sorts of names and metaphors. And... Um, essentially assaults who they are, insults who they are and what they're doing. But here we have a, an unusual story, and this is what I find challenging in this. This is a woman who has come to Jesus for help, not even on her own behalf, on behalf of her daughter. And Jesus seems to insult her. Now, if you read commentaries uh, around Scripture or maybe in your study Bible, or if you looked at this before, it's very common to say that Jews called people who were not Jews, uh, that is Gentiles, that they called them uh, dogs. And that's become a common idea whenever we discuss this passage. But in fact, in recent uh, decades, that has been researched. And in fact, there's no evidence that in particular, uh, Jews in the first century called Gentiles dogs. In fact, a dog was a derogatory way to talk about someone in terms of a personal insult. And it was a particularly derogatory way to talk about a woman. And it seems to be that that's what Jesus says here. He says something that sounds like a proverb, maybe. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. With a clear implication that this woman is regarded as one of the dogs. And so what we've done over the Christian centuries is actually excuse Jesus. And I watched some videos during the week, uh, Bible study videos, and I read some commentaries, and they say perhaps Jesus is uh, taking a light-hearted and bantering tone as he speaks to this woman at his feet and uh, implies that she's a dog. And so we excuse Jesus here. And even one of my favourite uh, New, New Testament commentators, N.T. Wright, said that that's what Jesus is doing. Well, I think N.T. Wright is wrong. I spent some time on that. Later in uh, about the third century, in a, what we'd call a apocryphal writing of the church, this woman was given a name as Justa. I'm not sure how I feel about calling her that afterwards because the church had decided to look at her a particular way. And the idea that is, is that in this story, she just accepts the insult but it doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem right to me that Jesus would say this. And what makes this a challenging story is that the roles are reversed. 
You see, normally someone comes to Jesus and they try and trick him or insult him or lessen his mission or imply he's not what he says he is, have a go at his character. And Jesus responds with something wise. He responds with a saying that challenges the perceptions of the speaker and of the listeners. But that's not what happens here. In fact, she replies to Jesus and in a way she doesn't respond to the insult in what it means to her personally. She actually takes it and she uses that metaphor and she says, Lord or Master, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Jesus says a proverb to her and she responds with a metaphor. And here's a remarkable part of the story. And this is where in this gospel, Jesus does not honour her faith. He honours her word. Jesus says to her, literally, because of this, the word. Because of this, the word. The demon has left your daughter. That's the important bit there, the word. It's a pivotal moment in the story. And remember, there's two females present in this story. Because the mother comes on the daughter's behalf. And, she, and it is the daughter and her illness that is driving this story and driving this request. And the mother goes home and she went home and found her child uh, lying on the bed. We're not, it doesn't actually say bed, it says reclining. It could in fact be reclining on the couch. There's a particular word they use in the Greek for reclining uh, on the couch when you were eating. What it shows is that the young girl is healed. And I've kind of wrestled with this story, wrestled with this story. What, what was the bit that mattered here? Because Jesus didn't celebrate her faith. He celebrated her word. And in fact, the Greek word for word matters here. It's an important word. It's the word logos. Now, I read to you at the start of our worship today from John's gospel, where Jesus is described as a word. And that's exactly the same Greek word, logos. And it means more than just a word as a few letters put together. It means more than that. It means a message. Often it's used of the gospel. Often it's used of Jesus himself. Right? It's the same word. We, it's the root word we have in English for eulogy, that L-O-G part of eulogy or monologue or dialogue. And it's a term full of meaning. And it's the word from the woman, from Justa, that Jesus responds to. He responds to the power of her word. And we know that words are powerful, and they're powerful in different ways sometimes. We know the power of words once spoken. Sometimes you can't take them back, can you? And they're powerful words in either way, for good or for ill, and we can't take them back once spoken. Jane's been working on a video with some of her friends from Hillsong, talking to them about their experiences in America in terms of racism. And when I was watching the video, uh, I noticed on the way through that they were talking about the N-word. All right, A word that has such power for evil, normal, normally, used as an insult, that we can't actually say the word. right? We have to describe it somehow else. So words we know have power and they can be laden with meaning. And it's kind of universal words, in a sense, that we all know. Powerful words. I'm sorry can be a powerful word. Please forgive me can be a powerful word. I love you so much can be a powerful word. 
And of course, there's words that have power to us. They're impersonal endearments or nicknames or words that are part of our story. And if we said them to others, they wouldn't get the context. They wouldn't understand the meaning. But they're powerful to us nonetheless. And these too can be words that people have spoken into our lives. Words that have shaped our lives for good or for ill. You see, words have the power to change us. And it appears that saying things, saying things out loud actually matters. There's this idea that smiles are linked to our emotional well-being. The more you smile, the more uh, you're happy. Uh, I'm yet to try it, but I've understood that it's a thing. And it's almost like there's this connection between the symptom and the reality that matters. And our words, our words, actually saying things out loud matters as well. It's not just about feeling them. It's about saying them out loud. You see, this was a determined woman here, a mother who wanted her daughter to be healed and she knew that Jesus could. And in a sense, it is the daughter's need that dominates the story. It's the motivator for the mother. And on her daughter's behalf, she wanted her request to be heard. She said it out loud. She didn't just wonder. It's a story of a determined and desperate woman who came into God's presence and through a powerful word changed Jesus' mind. Because that's, if we take the story at face value, that's what it appears happened. And I kind of like that idea. I'm drawn to that idea that Jesus actually responds to the things I say. It's actually not a new idea. It's in scripture, of course. One of my all-time favourite Old Testament stories is the story of Abraham. And it's in Genesis 18. And uh, God is contemplating destroying the city of Sodom. And uh, Abraham pleads the case of the city. And if you've ever seen the Get Smart show, you kind of see it in the Get Smart movie if you watch that. But if you watch the Get Smart TV show, Get Smart does this thing where he says... Uh, don't make a move, we're surrounded by a hundred Marines. Would you believe? And the amount of people who are there gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's exactly what Abraham does with God. He said, if there were 50 godly people, would you save Sodom? And God says, yes. And he said, what about if there was 40? And God says, okay. What about if there was 30? And kind of bargains God down. And it's this beautiful idea that God responds to our requests God responds to our prayers. Yes, God knows our hearts. And the scriptures tell us that, that the Spirit interprets for us. We don't really know what to say when we can't give words to what is in our hearts. But it seems our spoken words have power. And when vague feelings and impressions and beliefs are expressed, it matters to God. James would say in his letter, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Or we might say, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Prayer, deep prayers, our holiest longings expressed are powerful. And it's an extraordinary idea, this idea that God hears us and responds to us. I don't know if you know the story of Bart Millard. Uh, He wrote a song. It's the biggest-selling Christian song of all time. And it's called I Can Only Imagine. I don't know if you know this song. And 
it was actually his story, essentially. He wrote the song as part of his story. He'd had a traumatic life. He called his father a monster. He'd been physically abused by his father for many years. His parents had separated when he was a little boy. When he was in high school, his father got pancreatic cancer. And his father also found faith. And his father was transformed by the power of the gospel. And he was, they were reconciled. You can actually watch the movie. It's called I Can Only Imagine. You can get it on Google Play if you're interested. $3.99. And it's a beautiful story because the father and the son, they reconcile. And the Bart realises the power of the gospel because he saw it in front of his eyes. His father, who he saw as a monster, became his best friend. In fact, their time together was only brief because his father died from that cancer. And at the funeral, his grandma said to him, I can only imagine what he is seeing now. And that phrase stuck with Bart. It was a word, you see. It was a powerful word. I can only imagine what he is seeing now. And he eventually wrote this song, uh, I can only imagine. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? See, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means many things, I guess. But central to the Christian story is this profound reality that we can come into the presence of Christ and speak words that change our lives and that Jesus hears us and responds. That's at the heart of this Christian story, that Jesus listens to me and knows me and cares about me that I can come to Jesus with deep and true and powerful and honest words, transforming words. You see, if you were to meet Jesus in the flesh right now, right now, and you had one thing you could say to Jesus, I mean, heaven won't be like this, but just imagine, you could come to Jesus and you could say one thing. What would that one thing be? What are the first words that you would say? Would you say, thank you? Would you say, forgive me? Would you say, I love you? Would you say, it's you? Would you say, you are everything to me? What would you say? When I was a bandmaster at Hurstville some years ago, our core officer, Major Ruth, introduced the band message and uh, she said the name of the piece we're playing but she said uh, the band is now going to play in his presence which was the title of the song but it just struck me that phrase the band is now playing in his presence and we are in his presence and that's the extraordinary thing that connects us to this story that Jesus Christ the same Jesus who spoke to a determined woman and a loving mum is here with us now. The Lord who heard her powerful word, 
who heard her request for healing. That Lord is the Lord that listens to you and me. And you and I are indeed in the presence of the living Christ. What word will you say to him today? You see, we're not in the one room. We're in kitchens and lounge rooms and bedrooms. But Jesus Christ, the presence of God is here. And we have the privilege of coming into his presence and saying a word. We approach him. What do we say? What is the deepest, truest thing that is on your heart right now? If you've got one thing to say to Jesus, what is it? What is it? Let's worship together as we sing.